Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. This is Steve Turk, and today I have another special episode. We're interviewing Kelly Aaron Decker. Um, she's an actress, producer, writer, director of a lot of different films, including Loon Lake, The Dinner Party, and um, also she was in The Nighttime Winds. How are you doing today, Aaron? I'm doing fine, doing fine over here on the East Coast, and I believe you're out there on the West Coast. So what's what's the weather like out there as we do this in oh, August? You know, it's funny because I actually should mention, uh, it's, I am in Los Angeles, and it is well over 100 degrees here today, and so the power company has issued warnings that they're going to do rolling blackouts. So, so should I disappear, don't think I, I got mad and hung up, but uh, I'm hoping we're not part of the rolling blackouts today, but... That is on the, that is a possibility on the table. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a little warm. <laughs> I, I can imagine, and and of course, you know, you, you, Maryland, as you used to live out here, um, a lot of times is warm this time of the year. But today, it's like a nice, like low eighties. Oh, I would love that. That would be. I'll, I'll just imagine that I am where you are, and then it'll be fine. I'll, I'll manifest myself in Baltimore. <laughs> I just, I'm just thinking most of the time people are like, you know, usually you guys got the better weather, but this one particular couple of days, these last few days, I think we, we, we actually had the advantage. <laughs> Rarely. You, you definitely have the advantage. And I'm somebody who I would much rather, if I had my brothers, I would live in Alaska. I, I don't like the, I don't like the heat at all. I miss the seasons. I miss, you know, shoveling snow. So this, uh, the, this, this part of Los Angeles is not my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, I love I love winter time too. Fall, winter, early spring. Once it yeah. gets to the summer, and it's just like, uh, you know, it's just it's just not fun. It's, it's a weird thing out here because you know, having grown up on these, I grew up in Baltimore. I lived in Pennsylvania, New Jersey for many years, and you get used to telling time by the season. And out here, I often will have no idea like what month it is because. Other than, you know, the two weeks where it's 115 degrees, it's always just, you know, in the 90s and sunny. And you have no concept of that things are changing or time is moving because you don't have seasons out here. And that was kind of one of the weirdest things for me to get used to. I'm still not used to it, really. But, yeah, I would, I would give anything for a little bit of snow. <laughs> oh, I know. And, of course, as you know from – living out here, sometimes the favorite thing was to take a drive in the fall and see the, the leaves changing on the trees oh, yeah. and, you know, go out for a picnic yeah. or something like that. And it's, oh. We have no leaves changing here. It is very, it's very, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's completely different. And a few times, I hate, I absolutely hate to fly, so I go back east very infrequently. But when I do, the one thing that's always just overwhelming is I forget how green it is. And it's just so beautiful and green and lush. And, you know, even if you're just leaving BWI and you've got the, the trees on the side of the highway, like that level of that, that color green doesn't exist out here. Like here, I mean, you can't really see out my window right now, but it's just these varying shades of brown. But that's, you know, the, the desert landscape. You, you, you just have to embrace it. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, and I guess people that grew up there just don't know anything any different. But, I mean, you, you obviously being from all over the place on the East Coast and going out to the West Coast, it really had to be a shock that first couple of years. And as you say, it's still, you still haven't adjusted. 
Yeah, no, I, I don't think I'll ever get used to it. I, I aspire to, to seasons and snow, so I'll, I'll hold out hope. Actually, last year we thought there was a day it was going to snow here, and I was so excited. And it because there's rarely, you know, first of all, it normally doesn't get that cold, and then second of all, it it so very rarely rains that to have snow, you know, requires the you know in the Venn diagram that the two have to come together. And I feel like there was a part over this last winter where it was so possible. And then like the temperature and that day of rain just like missed each other. And it was, it was the biggest disappointment because I was so, I was so excited for it. Like, snow, snow, you you know, you might've been one of the few people. <laughs> like, long, 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 oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because you can see it. Um, you know, where I live in the San Gabriel mountains and where I am, it, it has snowed historically. Some of my neighbors have pictures, I think from like the fifties when it had snowed here, but I, I'll be able to see it on the mountaintops in the distance. And it's kind of this like, I mean, it's wonderful to see it, but it's also taunting because it's, it's within view, but, but to drive there is just a little, a little too much. So, um, I've, I've driven up there occasionally just to like get into it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I miss it. I miss a lot of things about Baltimore, but that's, that's one of them. Do you miss the steamed crabs? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I, I've been a vegetarian most of my life, uh, more than 25 years. And I have never, ever, ever, ever missed like beef or chicken or anything. That's it's just never. But the one thing, because, you know, growing up on the Bay, and the smell of Old Bay is kind of this Pavlovian response. I mean, I haven't eaten a steamed crab in over 25 years. But when I smell it, I get that, like, <gasps> feeling of it. So uh, if there would be anything that I missed, I would say that would be it. Just because of the, you know, there's something about growing up with that that, you know, I, yeah. Yeah, for those that don't know, Old Bay is is like the seasoning in almost every Baltimore food. I mean, there's people that put on everything, and it's just it's just like uh, this area. It's everybody. Every area has their own little quirk with cuisine, and in this area, Baltimore, it's it's Old Bay. Uh, you know what else Old Bay goes on? Old Bay goes on thrashers. You know what thrashers are? Oh yeah, thrashers. I thought you said something else. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. The, fries. The, the other thing, yeah, the other thing I miss is uh, the Thrashers in Ocean City. Absolutely love them. Have to, I have a difficult time explaining to people like how they're not French fries. I'm like, no, they're Thrashers. They're different. But um, yeah, Old Bay on Thrashers. That would be if I could have snow and Old Bay on Thrashers. I would be totally fine living in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's like because you go if there was on it, we go to Ocean City. You, you get a big bucket. And um, you yep. share it with, like, as a family, everybody's eating them. And, you know, it's just like, oh, oh, it's good. Yeah. Pour the vinegar on them. Pour Old Bay on them. Actually, to, to my mom's credit, one year I was feeling very, I don't know, nostalgic or sad or whatever. And she went to Ocean City. She bought Thrashers. Now, she ate most of the bucket, but she left, like, a few in the bottom and then FedExed out the bucket to me. <laughs> with like the few remaining thrashers but that smell you know it, i could i did she didn't tell me what was inside the package but i opened it up and before i even unwrapped it like i knew what it was because it was the smell of ocean city the 
the smell of thrasher's vinegar and old bay like i knew immediately and it was even though most of the bucket had been eaten it was like the best gift ever oh i mean again it's oh it makes me want i'm I'm wanting them now you know i could just taste it in my mouth you want to drive to ocean city right now don't you say i know i do too I'm a little bit closer to it, so I'd be able to get there and still be today. <laughs> yeah, it's a little more reasonable for you to do it, but I can, I'll live vicariously through you. If you go, I'll totally, I'll feel it here. My, my brother, um, my eldest brother moved away from Maryland and lived in Colorado for a while. Now he lives in Texas um, and stuff like that. So every so often on his birthday, my other brother and I will take pictures of the steam crabs and the fries and we'll just oh. And say, oh, and we'll show this empty plate, you know, this, this plate. It has his name on it. And we're like, oh, since you can't be here. One time we did a video. Since you're not here, I guess we'll just have to eat your crabs and uh, your fries since you chose not the show. (laughs) Yes, it sounds like you and my mother are on the same plane there. (laughs) You got to have some fun. You know, it's, you know, it's. And of course, when you have siblings, I don't know if you have any siblings, but you, you, you grow up doing those kind of things to each other and. I do not have any siblings, actually. I have two cousins who are, we're all, we're just two years apart from each other, and we all grew up, you know, in Bel Air, so, and we still are in touch. So they're, they're, they're the closest thing that I have, and um, we we do the same thing. So it, it, the behavior extends beyond, you know, the sibling connection. I know because and it's that way, too. She was, um, we were all guys, and, and she was like our sister. So anytime she'd go on a date, my my brothers and I would always inspect them. And if that guy would have done anything, I, I felt really sorry for that particular gentleman. It's, it's, he would, it's like, it's like, um, it would not have ended well. Yes. <laughs> I can imagine. Yes. And now what led you to go down this path growing up to decide to become an actress and, and to go into that, the field that you're in, what, what, what happened when you were younger that said that led you to believe that I want to be an actress? This is a surprisingly difficult question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everybody should have an easy answer for this, and I don't. Um, you know, I've I've done a lot of things in in my life. Um, I kind of pride myself on being a jack of all trades. Now, obviously, you know, we all know the downside to that, which is obvious and and very apparent in my case but um you know I've done a lot of things and I've always like this has always been in my heart um when I lived on the east coast I did a lot of theater like I did uh regional theater I lived in Pennsylvania so I did theater in Allentown and in the theaters in New Jersey um and I love the theater and at a certain point there was kind of this I I I was gonna move and I had to my two choices in my mind were I'm going to move to live with the Amish or I'm going to move to Hollywood and see if I can make a career. And I had a lot of difficulty making the decision. And I figured if Los Angeles did not work out, I could always go back to the Amish, that they would still be there. Whereas, you know, you kind of have a, a window of opportunity for acting. I mean, lots of people are successful when they're older, but you know, it's, it's harder to break into, I think. So that's why I chose to come out here, and um, I don't know. It's it's challenging. Um, Los Angeles is a for me is a hard place to live. It's very different than the East Coast. Um, the sensibilities are different. The how people are is different. Um, 
but it is, you know, one of kind of the few places to be if you, if you want to do that. So, um, I'm very lucky to have, you know, met Ansel and Nate and Eric and some of the other people who I continue to work with, um, you know, who share my work ethic and interest more in stories rather than just commercialization, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a weird non-answer to your question. <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm just floored that your choices were the Amish or L.A. I mean, you talked about... <laughs> Two opposite ends of the spectrum. Of, of If I, yeah, well, one of the things that I would love to do um, is move to Montana and live in a place without electricity or running water and live as the homesteaders did in the 1880s. Um, there are a lot of things about me that are a little peculiar. Like, I don't own a cell phone. I don't want one. I never want one. I hate them. I hate what communication has become. Um, and I feel like people have gotten very far away from their, I don't want to say roots, but like being connected to what they're doing. Um, so the Amish is one aspect of that. I mean, there are Amish in St. Ignatius, Montana, but, um, that lifestyle and creating things with your hands, being responsible, living a certain way was very appealing to me. Um, it still is, honestly, and that might be one of the reasons why I have a difficult time living in Los Angeles, um, because probably my values are very different than many other people who live here. But um, hopefully before I, I you know, get, get too old, I'll be able to do my, my homesteading attempt and see how I do. I feel like, um, I don't know if you know a lot of the history of the homesteaders and what happened in Montana, but you know, many of them did not make it through the winter. Uh, it's, it's difficult. And I feel like I would like to, not really about like proving yourself, but it's just about living life more as I think it was intended to be. I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, it does. I mean, everybody's drawn to different things, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. I mean, some people, they, they, they what is it? Like, some people think everything has to have money involved with it, and forgetting that, you know, it, uh, the, the, being successful at something doesn't mean it has to be money. It just has to be, are you rewarded yourself with what you're doing? Are you happy? And those kind of things. Yeah. And it seems like you're cho- both these paths that you're talking about would be different ways to have that personal happiness and fulfillment. You know, one of them would be, I mean, they're different. They're totally different from each other, but I mean, I don't think well, there's anything wrong with either things, one. Yeah. One of the things that you said about success though, that's one of the things about LA that people here tend to tie success to either a monetary value or this being famous, whatever that means. Um, I mean, I guess those things are all right, but for me, you know, Loon Lake, which you've seen, it is not a commercial success. You know, it didn't run in theaters. Everyone is not, you know, it's not on everyone's lips right now. They're not running around in the streets talking about Loon Lake. I mean, I guess some people are, but, you know, it's not universally known across America. But to me, that project was very successful because of what Nate and Ansel and I accomplished, which, you know, maybe doesn't match up with 
what other people in Los Angeles might think of in terms of success. But the, you know, for us to be able to go to Nate's hometown and be welcomed there and create something that captured the spirit of the place where Nate grew up and that landscape and hospitality and go back there to show our project to everyone who helped us make it. Like that was a huge success. Um, like it's more kind of success of the heart than it is success of, Oh, we made this money or we're on, you know, whatever it is. There's a lot of competing sensibilities here. So to kind of carve out a niche here in Los Angeles where we are telling stories that are meaningful to us, sharing things with people that are, you know, maybe not everybody's definition of, of commercial success, but that's, that's so like some of the projects that I've done that might be considered the most commercially successful were certainly not the best experiences for me. And certainly not the works that I'm like the proudest of or the most interested in or the most invested in um, heart wise or other. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had, um, you know, with, with Nate and Ansel and Eric and the things that we're doing together. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I know there are certain actors and actresses that would do the bigger roles, like take, like they get all for the money in this big picture. And they do that too, in order to do their independent film. So they're like, Exactly. Uh, like John so, uh, Cervantes, or Cervantes, Cervantes. Oh God, I'm butchering his Cassavetes? name. What? Casavetes. Yes, Casavetes. Thank you. He was. He was. He was. Um, the probably biggest one known to do a job paying a lot of money, so he could do his films and make his creative work. So that way, one paid for the other, and um, exactly. that was his labor of love. Yeah, and some of the things that I've done that were maybe for money. Um, you know, more from the producing standpoint than the acting standpoint for, was where the money came in, I guess. Um, maybe weren't things that I loved or thought were, you know, amazing, but all of that money went into being able to make Loom Lake. So it was, it was, you know, absolutely worth it. And, and you know, a lot of people do that same thing. They'll do the commercial project that happens to have money attached to it so that they can do the independent passion project, the thing that has the really interesting character that isn't going to get featured on, you know, somebody's kind of commercial thing. Um, and maybe they're, they're, you know, not getting paid for it. They're doing it because they love it. And that's the character that's interesting. That's the story that they want to tell. And it's, it's not being financed by a studio. Um, but they've done the other project so that they can do the thing that they love and that they care about. So, yeah. And since, since you're talking about Loon Lake, let's just move right into Loon Lake, you know, so we, as, as we should always, <laughs> we should, you know, nor, you know, why, why go in order? We'll just go right to it since you've been bringing it up. And that was, um, I remember seeing that earlier this year and um, I really enjoyed it. Cause if, if, for those that don't know, um, if actually anybody's been listening to this podcast, I've already interviewed, you, you've already heard the interview with Ansel, heard a review of Loon Lake, and um and heard Nathan's Wilson's interview, so you know what I've seen Loon Lake, and it's a psychological horror thriller, and you play the witch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. 
and, and I look at it in an interesting way is that um, I don't think of you as being the, I mean, in a sense you could say you're the bad person, you know, like the whatever, but uh, the reverend, the reverend was the one who um, I think is the most evil character played by David Selby in the movie, you know, and, uh, and, and really his character had this, his character and um, Nathan's character, Lewis, um, all had those problems with faith where um, they've had bad things happen to them and then their faith with life, spirituality, when everything was compromised and your character in the, in the past and the present and, um, and things like that, it's actually um, the interesting part because um, I don't know if your character was per se, I would consider evil, you know, back in the, it was just, she was wronged. And it was almost like a vengeful spirit type thing to go back and get certain revenge. Well, this is one of the one of the reasons that I like the story and one of the things that we wanted to get across. Essentially, you know, some people say there's two sides to every story. I would say there's at least three sides to every story. You know, there's my side, there's his side, there's the truth. There's probably somebody else's perspective. And, you know, even though my story was set in the 1880s, and I, you know, I did come, I, I, I made my way into present time, but, um, the, even the 1880s story to me was so relevant to what's happening today. Like I'm not on social media. I hate social media. I hate <laughs> how people interact on it, what it's become, but it's like someone will post something. Oh, all of a sudden it's true. All of a sudden everyone has this perspective. Well, it, it may or may not be it's what one person has said. So when you're learning the different aspects of my story, you know, each viewer, I guess, can decide which ones do they believe and how much and where is the truth and all of that. But, you know, according to, if you listen to Pastor Jansen's side, he would certainly tell it one way. I would certainly tell it another way, which one is, which one is true. And across, you know, that, that one is, is over, you know, more than a hundred years when, uh, the, his grandson, great-grandson, is, is telling Nate, you know, the story of what happened. Well, history has certainly, how much has that story changed over 150 years? Well, nowadays in America, how much has that story changed in two minutes? How much do we learn? You know, the media now is happening so fast, and people make judgments so quickly. And when you hear something on the news and you have this reaction to, oh, this person is, I can't believe they did that. That's so bad. That's this, that's that. Well, you know, you're hearing, you're hearing one side. Um, so I think that my 1880s portion of that story is kind of very relevant to what's happening today and how much, how do you know what to believe when you're hearing somebody's side of the story? How do you know um, when someone is leveling allegations? Well, what really happened? Only two people were there and they're telling very different sides. So you as the outsider, you know, how, how do you even have the right to make a judgment? You don't know. Um, but yet that's what everyone in the town did. I mean, I was beheaded in the opening scene. So, you know. And they did a terrible job of doing that. It, it's like, yeah, you're talking about stretching it out. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably my most fun scene to film. I love that scene. That was, that was the best day because, um, you know, unlike in Los Angeles, 
it rains in Minnesota. And one of the things that it does is it will thunderstorm like out of nowhere and then disappear as soon as it came. So we had scheduled to film that scene. I mean, in my mind, it was a Tuesday afternoon. Now, don't, you know, quote me on that. But let's just say it was Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> and we've scheduled, you know, we're going to be in this place. We've gotten a bunch of folks from the town who were interested in being that scene. You know, they've taken the afternoon off work. They're ready to be there. Everything is planned. And that morning, it was thunderstorming like nobody's business. And we were very worried that we would not be able to film, you know, we can't film that scene outside in a thunderstorm. Um, And then luckily, I want to say like an hour before we're supposed to be getting ready to go, the skies opened up. Everything worked out. It was the most beautiful afternoon, but still had those storm clouds kind of in the sky behind And I remember, you know, all of those folks in that scene, you know, Nate's parents are in that scene. Catherine's brother and sister, sorry, I'm going to start crying, (laughs) are in that scene. Nate's, you know, friends from high school are in that scene. And they didn't know what to expect. Like, they're thinking, oh, we're coming to do this fun thing and we're going to support Nate. And, you know, we get there and I remember the first time that I screamed. And everybody, like, stood up and was like, oh, shit, like, this is really happening. (laughs) This is really, and then, you know, David starts in with his speech, you know, condemning me. Um, There was kind of a bigger speech of that that got cut down in that particular scene. But suddenly, everyone in there, who were not actors, you know, who were family and friends, everyone went from, hey, we came here to, you know, have a good time and see what this was about, to holy shit, we're in 1880 and this woman is getting her freaking head cut off like that. And it, it was just a really amazing afternoon and kind of, you know, almost thought it wasn't going to happen because of the thunderstorm. And then it turned out to just be the most beautiful, that landscape. I mean, it was so, just so, so beautiful. Um, yeah, and I did, I liked getting my head cut off. So yeah, that was fun. <laughs> I, I never knew that um, Catherine Lee Scott's um, family was there. I guess that was probably the first and only time they were ever in a a, 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 a movie or anything with her because most of her stuff was never done in Minnesota. You know, I knew she yeah, grew up so there. I know what happened. It is um, just coincidentally, you know, Nate is from Minnesota, completely coincidentally. Catherine is from Minnesota. So it worked out that she could visit her family and spend, you know, a few days or a week with them and drive down for our filming. So her brother and sister-in-law drove her down, I think from Minneapolis or somewhere a little bit up north, to spend uh, that day with us. Um, While she was there, the the beheading was one afternoon, and then her scenes in the Parsonage were kind of the next day. So I think from what she said, it was the first time that they had gotten to see her, like, be on set and acting. You know, they were in the Parsonage in the next room, uh, I don't know if they could see it or just hear it, but be there, you know, while she was filming that scene. Uh, I think that was the first time in all these years that they've gotten to, to have that experience. So we were, I mean, we were thrilled that she could even make it, let alone to like have them come and, and get to be a part of it and experience it with her. That was that was really awesome. Well, that had to be. I mean, I, I can imagine because her career has been going around for 
quite some time, you know, and uh, and to finally have that chance to do it with her family and to be there and then spend the time with them and and, and to do a project that, that 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 is that is probably something that was very special to her and I'm sure too you know her family also to do it so I just find it interesting because you're like oh we had the best weather ever for a beheading you know it's <laughs> <laughs> it was the perfect afternoon for a beheading <laughs> <laughs> and and I can imagine back in those days you know um even prior to that when they used to have like in the wild west the public hangings and all those other things and you go back people that was the event and people would show up and I guess, I guess some people would be like not knowing what to, what to expect and then you know they have that festival atmosphere sometimes where they're selling stuff and everything and then all of a sudden you see it and I could just feel whoa this is real you know and, and I guess especially when they're young and it's just like whoa it, it, it feels to me like that crowd was actually going through something that would have been similar to people back in the day coming to their first uh, public execution so to speak yeah and I remember you know when we got there you know because everybody you know really had no idea of what you know what's about to happen here um I remember Ansel you know kind of talked to everybody and, and one of the folks had a question of like well how are we supposed to react to this and the answer was you're going to react however you react some of some of the people here hate me Maybe you, maybe you like me. Maybe you're upset about this, but you can't do anything about it. Maybe you're, everyone who's at this event is going to feel differently about it. There's, there's, not, there's not one answer to how do you feel and how, and how does that show. You're going to see it for the first time. You're going to feel a certain way. You know, maybe you, Kimmy, maybe you're friends with Kelly or Mary Jane. <laughs> uh, maybe you are really upset this is happening. Maybe you... There, there's one woman there who I remember seeing her expression. I'm like, oh yeah, she hated me. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody, everybody feels differently, and that's how it would be in real life. So it, it was, um, it was good, yeah. And I'm sure there's people there that were ambivalent. Like, was she, was she really a witch? Let's see. Let's go find out if she does any witchcraft. And you, you always got those people that are just there to, and they don't really care one way or the other. They're just curious and. Uh, that, that. Well, it's an event. Everyone's going to show up for it's it's a you know you don't turn your head away from whatever the accident is on the side of the road or the beheading or that it's a it's a thing and you you know witness it for better or worse. Yeah, and and that's what happened back then. Now I know this film different than most of Ansel's films was one of the few times he was on location and able to use real um, sets. Well, not sets, but real um, buildings and things like that. And uh, That was an absolute blessing. Um, I mean, everything that you saw there was in Nate's hometown. Um, and part of the constraints really about when we had to be there had to do with the corn because so much centered around, you know, Nate being in the corn and there were actually more things that happened in the corn that got cut from the movie. Um, cause it, it, our initial version, I think was over like two and a half hours long because we just had so much. Um, so we had to be there at the height of the corn, you know, literally and figuratively and before it was harvested. So there was kind of a, a narrow window of opportunity for us, but, but um, all of the other things, you know, I remember, because Ansel and I obviously had not been to this place before. So when we're thinking, okay, we really need 
this church and it has to look historic. So I bought a book on eBay that was called the historic churches of Minnesota. And I looked up all these places, went through this entire book, tried to do, you know, the Google street view or whatever. And that was a little bit difficult because a lot of places weren't mapped, you know, trying to find out about where can we possibly go. And Nate went back, I think just to visit his family at some point during the time when we were planning the, the shoot. And he was like, Hey, you guys, I kind of forgot that, like, right in town, there's this historic church that's now part of a, I mean, it's part of something called Pioneer Village. You know, it's a place where, like, they'll take the school children to come, and they have different buildings to learn about, well, how did people live during this time? And they have a lot of, like, antique farm equipment and, you know, different places that are actually from the time, but now it's more of a historical museum, which was literally 10 minutes from his house. And I'm like... How did you forget this was here? But it, it worked out perfectly because that is, you know, the historic church. The parsonage was the parsonage. Like we didn't have to have to do anything to make that the parsonage. So yeah, the benefit of, of really being there and not, you know, imagining I think you mentioned nighttime winds. Um, that was like Ninety percent green screen versus Loon Lake, which was you know less than one percent, uh, like one shot with green screen. Um, just completely different in terms of like being in the world and being able to you're experiencing it because that's what's there. Um, so yeah, that was. I think it was very necessary for that movie. A lot of the elements, you know, there there would be no way to do the corn stuff. There'd be no way to do the the church, the beheading, the anything, um, not and have it be good. Um, so yeah, going to Minnesota was, you know, other than just an amazing road trip and experience, those landscapes and those buildings and those, you know, the scene where I'm hanging up in the in the um, in the hay mound. That I believe that was Nate's uncle's uh, hay mound. It's a, it's a real one. I mean, you don't, we, we couldn't recreate that here. We couldn't find a hay mound here, anywhere near here. <laughs> um, so to have those things that were authentic to the place, because Nate's story, because it ultimately, you know, derives from his hometown, it was real to be able to be there and show the elements that were always part of that story for him, always part of growing up, always part of the life and the landscape and the feeling of that place, you, you don't recreate that in Los Angeles and capture what's true um, about it. It's just not not possible. Yeah, because, I mean, even though a lot of your scenes are in the woods, finding that, you know, that if you can do the woods in, in California, but they're not going to be the same as they would be in Minnesota and other states and stuff like that. So, I mean, going there and being able to do that location – and um, it makes, I'm sure, it makes a, a big difference because now you're. I mean, again, you got the elements. It's it's um, with the rain and everything else coming into play, and you start to feel more into, I'm sure, like the character and things like that because you're actually like with everything. Well, and being there, it's like this is this is where we live. Um, you know, whether it's the 1880s or, or 2018 this is where we live. And then you don't have to have that element of, of buying into it. I mean, let's say that we had done the woods here in Los Angeles. I mean, yeah, it wouldn't have looked the same. I guess it would be possible. But then 
we're no longer in the place where we live. And even though you know you could say, oh, well, if you're a good actor, you're never going to know the difference. Sure, but for us being there in the play in the world that we've created, you know, that was our world for the month that we were there. That was those woods were the woods where all of this is happening. Um, that's within walking distance of the town and the place and where Nate goes to, you know, rent the Gunderson farm to get away from the cities and all of these things. Like that was the world. Um, so for us, it was good to live in that world because it was like a moment of, a moment of time where everything in it was true. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Yeah. And I noticed also the second time I was watching it, the, uh, and it's been it's been now like um maybe two months since I last seen it, and of course longer for you. I mean I'm sure when you did it, but your costume back was was changing. You know when in the 1880 part, and you're getting more and more like feathers and things like that. I was, I was noticing I was like oh she's getting more and more in in like like a bird. I love I love my feather cape. Yeah, there were some um there were probably some more bird elements that maybe didn't quite make it, but that was something that um, I had wanted thematically, but not to like hit anybody over the head with. I mean, I wasn't going to like physically turn into a bird and fly away, but it was, you know, the manifestation of the natural elements and the loons. And, you know, there was a bit of a transformation. So I needed to have that, physically show on screen without being like hitting somebody over the head with a bird. Um, but yeah, I love, I love my feather cape. <laughs> I was like, it's like, oh, it, it's like, it's, it's, it's subtle. And then eventually, like, it, like I said, if you watch it a second time or a third time, you'll notice like with the outfits, how it changes as it goes through. And I was like, Oh, that's pretty cool. What was it like doing your scenes with David Selby? Uh, <laughs> which, which one? Whichever the beheading. <laughs> well, not the beheading. I mean, but but working with them, you know, it's um, because it's, it's you're getting somebody. It's like Catherine Lee Scott. But I don't know yeah. much in the movie. Um, she was there, but she wasn't. Re- you didn't really have a lot of interactions with her. What was it like working with these two? Um, you know, legends of TV, movies, and that kind of stuff. Well, I'll tell you a story about Catherine that I think kind of. In te- the story will give you your answer. And, you know, my very roundabout way, 10 minutes later, you'll have your answer. But it's, this story kind of tells you a lot about her. Um, so these are people, obviously, who have decades more experience than any of us, than, you know, me, Nate, and Ansel, are obviously professional people who are, you know, we talked at the beginning about, like, what is famous, what does that mean, whatever, whatever. But they're famous, fine. So being on set, there was never that element of, oh, this project is beneath me, or I should be, you know, whatever. Catherine, for example, um, we were on set together a lot, even though the only scene in which we appear together was the beheading, and we're not talking to each other during that. But, um, you know, we had this day when we were at Pioneer Village, and I was going to film my scenes in the church with David, both the early scene where, you know, he kind of molests me, and then the later scene where I come back for vengeance. While, not while, but on the same day, Catherine was filming her scenes in the parsonage because we had that whole location for one day and had to do both of them. So 
we had to drive there with, you know, everything in our van and everything that we brought and all of these things. And, you know, there's a lot to keep in mind when you're producing and acting and trying to get everything together. It can be easy to forget an element <laughs> um, because there's so much that you're trying to kind of wrangle and make sure that everything happens. And there's a hundred moving pieces and only three of us doing the moving. So we get to Pioneer Village and I realized that I left back at Nate's house this apron that I had bought specifically because I was supposed to be cleaning the church. So I have my bucket, I have my thing, I have my apron, whatever. Well, I had left my apron at the thing, which, you know, maybe isn't the biggest deal in the world, but to me it was part of what was happening. And obviously I would have this and I'd be doing this with my hands and I'd have this apron and, and I didn't have it and we didn't have time to go back and get it. Well, Catherine had brought for her character an apron that I believe belonged to her grandmother. And she brought it to use for her character in the scene. And this is going to make me cry too. For her scene in the parsonage. And when she found out that I didn't have mine, she was like, you can wear mine. Nobody's going to know that it's the same one. You kind of like blew it off. But I find that in Los Angeles, like so many actresses for whatever reason it's like there's kind of this I don't know if it's competitive or you can be on set and have actresses not want to help you out like for some reason maybe they'll secretly be happy if you like fall on your face I don't know Catherine gave me something that was personal that she brought for her to make me look good and to be able to do my scene the way that I had planned to do it and it's like, this is Catherine. Like, she didn't even have to talk to me. She could have been in her own room doing her own thing, not in the barn getting ready with me and helping me and, you know, like putting it on. And it's like that act of generosity and being, hey, we're here together. We're doing this thing together. And it's going to be the best that it's going to be. I mean, it was, to me, that said like a ton about her character and who she is. And there was never a sense of, oh, you guys are beneath me or this project. is It was, she was so happy to be there and invested in what she was doing and invested in that. I mean, you've been telling her scene in the parsonage, like her character and what she put into that, that the, the heart that she had for that. Um, it was not some, and, and I think this is kind of what we talked about before about, um, you know, you can do roles for television and this and that, and maybe you got paid a lot of money, but like, this is something that she read and she cared about and she cared enough about it to fly to Minnesota and do it and to put her heart into it. And so that was, I mean, it was a, a blessing to have her there. And I mean, she was a joy to have. And I remember, you know, there's so many things that you don't see in the finished product that, you know, I, I, I just, I remember in the beheading, Obviously, I guess as a bit of the story, if you wanted to interpret it, she, her character and mine could be seen as could be seen as competitors, right? I'm I'm the other woman, and I'm about to be beheaded. And I remember when the camera was on her, like I knew that it was going to be her coverage. And there was a moment where I'm about to be beheaded, and I looked at her and did something differently so that in her coverage she would have this reaction to seeing me about to be beheaded. And, you know, the, the, the finished product is you're never seeing that. But when you're in the, the moment and you're experiencing it, and I remember, 
like how I felt about her and how she felt about me. <laughs> and it's like, I, I remember specifically that moment that no one else will ever see or know about. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I, I was so glad that they were willing to do it and do it not as like a, oh yeah, I'm doing it for a paycheck, I'm whatever, like doing it because they believed in it and loved the story and, and wanted to tell the story and, and wanted to, you know, immerse themselves in this world that, you know, we tried to create as best as we could with the little money that we did. Um, I mean, they were like 110% in it. Yeah, there's, there's a line I, I always remember from Ricardo Montabam. Um, um, he said this, and he, he attributed it to somebody else. I can't remember who he attributed it to. I got to really look this up. But he said, you're only an actor when you're acting. When you're not acting, you're no longer an actor. And he said this when he was, you know, later in life. And I think those that have the passion, like Catherine and um, and David Selby and, and, and people that don't need the money, they're, they're just doing it because they love to act. Yeah. And they look for projects mm-hmm. that speak to them. And I think you can see that in their performances because they, they, they don't have to go out and do this. So that's why I don't think they're ever going to look at it as being beneath them because they chose to come out there. They chose to, you could say inconvenience themselves. They're not home. They're not where they normally are. Of course, in Catherine's case, in a sense, it wasn't, you know, she was able to have a, a, a trip and see her family and do that. So it was, it was probably like a, a double plus for her in the column, you know, I think that's why you get such great performances from them is because they're there for the love of the art. Yeah, and this is also, you know, the difference between people, like we mentioned, maybe people who are famous or people who are in it for commercial success or money or whatever it is, and then people who are in this because they love to tell stories and they want to share something. I mean, you know, with this particular script, you can get a lot of different things out of it. Um, One of the criticisms that we've received in some reviews is... uh, Criticisms from people who call it out as being a faith-based movie. Um, and it's funny because when we first read these, we're like, it is? Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, to me, and, and to Ansel and Nate, who wrote it, um, it is not a faith-based movie. We're, we do not have a particular message about any faith, but faith is an element of the movie, just as faith is an element in many people's lives. And the script reflects many elements of many people's lives. So I would say there are certainly faith-based movies, and there are movies that maybe want to hit you over the head with some kind of message about this or that. But it's certainly not what we were going for. But in telling the stories about these characters, that is an element of their lives that can't be ignored and was important. What the audience wants to draw from that is very open to interpretation, based on the events as they unfold and you know different people have different interpretations about my character or about the ending or about all of these things you can take from it what you will um but anyway i think i got sidetracked what i was trying to say was that folks who are in this because like Catherine and david they want to tell stories that are interesting and meaningful and about characters who are, are rich and have a lot of different real things going on or competing emotions or feelings or whatever they're going through 
it's not just, you know, this like, oh, movie of the week about whatever that's forgettable. They, I think it shows in their performances and certainly in their being on set that they were there because they loved the story. They cared about the story. They believed in this story and these characters and telling this. Um, and so, you know, again, to me, that is a success. Exactly. I mean, just making a film in itself and getting it all the way out to the end product is, is a tremendous success because there's so many films that start, sputter, and stop, or you never even get to the point where you actually film anything, as you well <laughs> you know better than I do. And um, it, it's just, yeah. just to get a finished I product. Stopped, I have stopped getting excited when somebody sends me something, which maybe, you know, says something about my mental state, but I don't want to be disappointed. And what I found is that most things that start and people are like, oh, rah, 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 don't ever actually get filmed, let alone get finished. And so when I first moved out here and I would be, oh my gosh, somebody sent me this thing and I'm so excited and I get to do this and da, da, da. Then I would be so crestfallen when, oh, we lost our financing. Oh, we can't, blah, blah, blah. Oh, so-and-so moved back to Iowa. Like, all of these reasons why a project would fall apart. I now, like, kind of wait until we're really filming <laughs> before I am excited about it. Because so many projects don't come to fruition. And for this particular project, it was very close to not being made at all. Um, and the reason is because, you know, we had... Nate and Ansel had written the script and I had written up a budget of what I thought it would take to make it. And I even had kind of like an ideal budget, a mid range and here's as low as we could possibly do it and not have it be awful. And we set about trying to find money and for months tried to, we thought that, you know, there would be companies in Minnesota who would be interested in, you know, whether it's like product placement or kind of a commercial trade or a tax credit for essentially sponsoring uh, the arts in Minnesota, all of these things. We spent months pursuing that avenue to have this budget that we wanted and we got nothing. And so, and again, like I mentioned, we had this window of opportunity with this corn. <laughs> it was like, we had to be there in September of 2018 or it would be two years before we could go back because Nate's parents, you know, they have to crop rotation, so they wouldn't have the corn the following year. And I remember we sat at my dining room table, which is the same place where I made the looms and where we did just everything was at my dining room table. We sat there and we're like, okay, we don't have the money that we want. What do we do? And we seriously discussed do we postpone it and spend the time to get the money and do whatever? Or, and the ultimate decision was no, this, I don't want to say the stars are aligned. That's so ridiculous. But all of the components are here right now. David and Catherine want to do this right now. We don't know what they're going to be doing. And in 10 years, uh, in two years, they could be on a TV series and not be able to get away for a month to go do this in Minnesota. Like they want to go now. We want to do it now. The corn is ready now. So we're going to take what little money the three of us have together and do the best that we possibly can. And maybe it won't be good enough. Maybe it won't be what we initially envisioned and we won't have, you know, certain elements that we thought. But we're going to do the best that we can. And I'm so glad that we made that decision because, you know, you can, you can always have more money. You can always, quote-unquote, 
do better or wait for this or wait for that or whatever it is. But, you know, the, the moments that we had, the perfect afternoon for the beheading, <laughs> the being in the church scene when I'm doing my evil deeds and lightning struck the church. <laughs> Was that going to happen in two years' time if we went back? Probably not. So it's like, you know, sometimes you just have to, you know, do the best you can. And we, ha- you know, we have a movie that we're, that we're proud of. Um, it took some creativity. I would say, you know, when you're working with a limited budget, one of the things that it forces you to do is to be creative. <laughs> um, so, for example, the script called for these loons, which you saw. Mm-hmm. Um, we could not have this movie without seeing these loons. There's the crucified loon. There's the loon that falls from the tree. There's another loon. There's no way to not show these looms. So when we're sitting down, we're like, okay, well, how do we go about getting a loom? Like, how do you even do that? So I went to this company that is like the biggest taxidermy company in Los Angeles. You know, they rent out everything for Hollywood movies. And the budget in our minds, I'm like, well, how much can a bird be that people reuse? And the fans are like, well, I mean, maybe like 50 bucks a piece and we need like three of them. Okay, well, I'll go down there. So the guy let me in and showed me his warehouse and it was amazingly impressive and overwhelming. And he took me to the bird section. And really, because, you know, I'm a vegetarian and I have my beliefs about animals, I didn't even want a real bird. I wanted a fake bird. He's like, we make birds from scratch. Look at this bird. You could never tell it wasn't made from plastic and all this stuff. And I'm like, that's fantastic. So if you made a loon, you know, how much, how much would it cost? Now, keep in mind, I'm going in there, but, you know, 50 bucks a piece. I believe it was 2900 a piece, and we needed three. And at that point, I'm standing in this man's store, and I'm, like, I'm so embarrassed because I'm just not even in, like, the right world. And I don't know how to tell him, oh, gee, I'm sorry, I had in mind, like, $50 a piece. I mean, that's just embarrassing. So the end result is, you know, I come and tell Ansel and Nate, and they're like, you have to be kidding me. Obviously, we need to get into the bird-making business if that's what's <laughs> going great right for a bird. I mean, that's insane. So I'm like, okay, well, how can, how can we need them? How can we do it for less money? I don't know the first thing about taxidermy or anything, but what I did find out at that taxidermist was that there are these foam or rubber forms that go into the animals to hold their skin or whatever, have them keep their shape. So I thought to myself, well, if I can get a hold of some of those forms, you know, I'm crafty. Maybe I can I can make something around those forms. Well, now I'm on the Mackenzie's taxidermy mailing list, and every quarter I get a catalog that's two inches <laughs> thick. <laughs> but they had foam forms for loons. And they sell the body, the neck, the head in different positions. So I ordered all of these body parts. And then I ordered thousands and thousands and thousands of feathers. And I took the foam forms and I built them up with clay. And then I glued on individually by hand probably 10,000 feathers. And I'm like, you know what? They're not bad. Like, they're not a real bird. I'm sure you can tell. I'm sure somebody can criticize. But for the purpose of we had to make something at my dining room table and put it in this movie, I'm, I'm pretty proud of my loot. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, having no budget made us think about how are we going to achieve this and what are we going to do? 
And that manifested itself in a hundred different ways of Nate and Ansel and I doing the equivalent of, you know, making three loans to make every element of that movie, you know, come together. And I think that's one of the reasons that it means so much to us is that, you know, everything that you see, every element, every prop, every costume, you know, the, the executioner mask and the beheading, Ansel's Aunt Jenny crocheted that for us. Like, everything in that movie is, is meaningful to us and, and came from us either creating it or, you know, Aunt Jenny <laughs> creating it or be gluing it or whatever. So it's like we're, we're so attached to it because we didn't just, oh, hire a prop person and then show up and there it is. You know, we, we made everything. So everything in there is has meaning and memories to it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I find fascinating is having talked to Ansel, Nate, David, and yourself, each of you brings a different perspective from this production into it. <laughs> As you talked about different perspectives and um, uh, yours is definitely in some ways from the um, production side, the most insightful part I think I've gotten, you know, cause everybody else was talking about different parts, like with the acting and things like that, which you have also, and and Ansel and I talked about oh my lord we talked about I think virtually every one of his movies so we 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 hit them all. Um, I'm sure I'm sure he told you about oh, it. And but but I, but I, I like I, about I, each I, perspective is a little different as you were saying before like yeah. everybody brings a different lens into the movie. Yeah, and and from a production standpoint, I think you know a lot of people in America are are critical of independent films. You know, I've read what people have posted on Amazon or wherever about our movie, you know, sometimes you can't help it. And I think it's very easy to criticize. This goes for not movies, but everything. It's very easy to criticize something when you've not tried to do it yourself. It's very easy to sit at home and watch something and talk about, oh, this wasn't good enough. This loon didn't have, the, it only had 10,000 feathers instead of 10,001, whatever it is. I feel like with independent filmmaking, there's a group of people who can appreciate what it takes to make something like literally out of nothing. <laughs> and I have found going through this process, I am way less critical of what other people are doing because I know what it takes. And I think that's a good perspective to have because, you know, there's far too much criticism in the world already. We don't really need any more of it, especially when someone is, is trying to be creative you know like you said it's hard to actually get something finished actually get something out there can you appreciate what it took for this person or this team to put this together so from a production standpoint if you know Nate and Ansel didn't talk about a lot of that aspect of it um I can very much appreciate or answer any questions about what it takes for three people you know normally on a Hollywood movie set you <laughs> All, all of my friends around here who work on bigger things, you know, they'll talk about one of my friends who I see every day is a, um, she's a costumer and she was kind of complaining a little bit with one of her other friends who was a costumer about what their costume budget was. It wasn't what they expected. And in my mind, as I'm listening to the conversation, their budgets for costumes were bigger than the budget of any movie I've ever worked on. And I'm like, if I had money, oh my God, like you have no idea. You have no idea. Um, so yeah, for if, if people at home knew, what does it take for three humans to put all of their 
heart and work and creation into making this thing with no money, then maybe they wouldn't be quite as critical and they would see it with a little more, I don't want to say like appreciation. I don't want to be appreciated, but like they would look at the story or the beauty of it rather than focus on, you know, criticizing a production element. Somebody was complaining about the lighting. Well, guess what? We don't have a team of 20 gaffers. In fact, we didn't have a single one. We couldn't afford to hire a gaffer. Sorry. We did the best that we could with what we had. Um, you know, they don't understand that when they're watching a, a big budget Hollywood movie and they're looking at a scene that's natural or outdoors or whatever, that is lit. Ten people spent ten hours <laughs> lighting this with lights that cost more than our whole budget. Um, you know, putting this together to make it look natural, sure. Like they, they don't they don't know what that movie had in terms of resources, both manpower and equipment. Um, and kind of maybe if they knew everything that went into it, they wouldn't necessarily be so critical of independent films that maybe are more about story or characters um, and can't rely on visual effects and all of the stuff that um, is very popular these days. <laughs> yeah, because anytime I, um, I talk with friends or review a movie that's an independent film, I always grade it on a curve because I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to complain about the effect or special effect because I know they had probably no budget. They probably, they themselves would want to have done it better. So I judge it by what's the script, what's the acting, and so on. I remember reading a review that came out early on about Lynn Lake, and the person essentially compared it to the movie The Witch. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Um, okay. They compared it to The Witch and said something like, well, you may as well just watch The Witch because it's this much better or whatever, whatever, and had these particular things about it. And I'm thinking to myself, I remember watching The Witch. It was fine. I remember watching the credits and seeing how many people worked on making that happen. I remember reading how many millions of dollars it took to make that movie. So when you say grading on a curve, it's like, I don't want to be graded against The Witch. <laughs> I want to, you know, that's, that's kind of... I don't want to say it's unfair. I mean, that sounds like I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not complaining well, that's about what I'm it. Saying. Just, um, that's what I'm saying. I don't great. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to compare an independent film to a multi-million dollar right. film because it's just, exactly. but when I watch a film that has a budget, let's say like the witch or even higher budgets, then if, if, if it doesn't look like I think it should look, I'm going to call them out on it because you had the money you chose yeah. not to do. You had all these resources. Why does it not? Yeah, so I will call them um, out like on it. When, yeah, I like when reviewers, you know, are comparing apples to apples. Um, I think for what we, the resources that we had, both financial and manpower and whatever, we far exceeded what anybody else I know could have done with that money. My neighbor works on commercials, and she, I have shot feature films in less time than she has spent shooting a 30-second commercial. And we kind of like have this running joke about it, but it's like, yeah, like they, that 30 seconds looks perfect. Everything about it looks perfect because you had a crew 10 times, well, more than 10 times this large. You had, you know, all of these resources and, you know, I have a whole feature film completed in the same time. You know, it, it is, it, it's like comparing apples and oranges. So, um, yeah, I do like when reviewers compare us 
not to, you know, Titanic or whatever is Avatar. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I actually, I, I try not to compare one movie to another movie because I think that's kind of unfair to that movie itself. And um, like one of them, I like to look at, it's like, it's like when people compare actors to actors. Oh, this person's going to be the next Spencer Tracy or the next Tom Cruise or whatever. It's like, no, no, yeah. no. No, they're going to be themselves. They're not going to be, yeah, that's, that's kind of a messed up bar. <laughs> but people do it all the time, you know, in sports especially. Yeah. And I'm just like, no, yeah. just be the best you and then go for it. I mean, and if you can do work like that other person and and, and able to have that effectiveness in that career, then yeah, I I could say that. Like, I hope hope this person, the way they're performing, you would think they're going to have great work and stuff like that down the road. I think that's a fair comparison because you're looking at careers, but not comparing the two together. You know, it's like, like, like in that kind of thing, but, but to to compare movies to movies, you gotta, you gotta be, on the same spectrum. Otherwise it's going to be, you know, really unfair to the movie itself, but this was not your first film Loon Lake with, with Ansel. (laughs) You, you actually, you did back a few years prior, you did Dr. Mabuse two where you were with him and um, you played an interesting character. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny how that came about actually. Um, that was the first project that I did with Ansel. And I had just responded to, you know, a casting call. Um, you know, I, we have kind of this online thing where jobs are posted and you can submit your headshot and resume. And if they like you, they call you in for an audition at a certain time or whatever. So I did not know answer. I did not know Ansel before that. I showed up randomly at this audition. I auditioned for a different role entirely. And he called me to tell me that I did not get the role that I auditioned for. I'm like, okay, well, that that sucks, but thanks for letting me know. (laughs) And a couple weeks later, he called and he was like, you know, do you remember me? Whatever, whatever. Well, of course. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on something. Okay, what does that mean, Ansel? (laughs) He's like, you know, are you still available? I'm, I'm, I'm working on something. Well, I now know Ansel says that a lot, but at the time I'm like, okay, I'm open to whatever. The role that I took was written for a much older man. The relationship between Chris Pennock, I don't want to say it was almost like a henchman, but it was, and it wasn't like Frankenstein and Igor, but it was more that relationship. And he told me, he's like, you know, I, I really liked you. I want you to be a part of this project. So I changed the role from being a much older man to being Chris's daughter. And I really didn't have to change much of the dialogue or the story because having that relationship actually lends a much different meaning to some of the things that are happening. Um, So I was thrilled and that's how, you know, we started that. And I guess at the time, maybe I thought it would just be a one-off because a lot of times, you know, you don't really continue with people, but um, we got along and Nate was there too, obviously as part of that. And that was, I guess, the beginning of this relationship that has developed over time. And I think out here, one of the things that's really important, at least in me being able to stay in the city that isn't my favorite place in the world, <laughs> is 
you know, finding people who are like-minded and have the same work ethic and are interested in, in doing these projects and you, you know, sometimes you have friends and I've tried to do projects with people who were friends before and like, Oh, complete disaster. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can work together on set or get something done. Angela and Nate and I started as I would say like coworkers who then became friends. And now it's kind of that rare thing where, we are friends, we have a great time when we're on set, but we also like care about the work, care about the finished product, want to do it the best that we can. And yeah, it's funny that that one like random audition for a part that I didn't even get turned into this now, I mean, maybe almost 10 years, almost 10 years later, um, you know, we're still working together and looking forward to doing more things together in the future. And, that, and you can tell because if you have that good relationship as you guys do with each other where you're all equals and you all have different strengths and weaknesses and you and you kind of balance it out, you're, I guess you could say you're like the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we each have um, – we are very, very, very different people. But we each have different strengths. And I like to think that somehow – those things kind of fit together in this puzzle. And, you know, maybe where one of us is weaker, the other one steps in and helps with that aspect of it. Um, and we really complement each other or balance each other. I don't know. But somehow that we work together well um, in a way where, you know, for example, like social media, I hate it, don't want to be on it, don't want anything to do with it. I understand from a mental perspective that it can be very important in marketing your movie, but it's something that I just, I can't, I can't do and I have no interest in. Ansel has worked, you know, he's done the yeoman's work of being on the Facebook and, you know, I had no idea that like there were all these different groups and like people would be like, Oh, the classic horror group and this group and that group. You know, he will do that work of marketing our movie and telling people about it and, you know, meeting you and doing all of this stuff that I, being the person who wants to live in Montana in a place with no electricity, would make the movie and then go live in my hole and never talk about it again. Uh, so if it were left to me, no one would know that our movie exists because I would I don't do the marketing aspect of it. Um, you know, he does all of the heavy lifting there. Um so, yeah, we each have things that we're interested in or things that we're better at or different strengths, and somehow that all, like, comes together. And, and that's what I mean. I mean, it, you can just tell from the, the work that you guys did with Loon Lake and because obviously in, in Dr. Mabuse, too, you are your first time with them, so you didn't, you know, you didn't have that dynamic yet. But I noticed in the nighttime win when um, I, I think that was your <laughs> first starring role in an, one of Ansel's productions. And um, that one was really good. I mean, of course, you got Christopher Pennock again, who played your dad, as you said, in Dr. Mabuse. And now he's in this movie with um, Kate Avery, who your, plays your sister. And Kate of course, and Nate, I think, was, if I remember correctly, was your husband. Yeah. And, you know, he also played, well, maybe, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that or whatever. He had a couple of roles in that movie, but yes, he did play, he played my husband and, um, so to talk about like how different that experience was than Loon Lake, 
a lot of that movie, due to various constraints, you know, was filmed in Ansel's living room, which is, I mean, I don't know, maybe we had like a 10 by 10 space and a green screen. So some of the, some of the things were real, but many, many, many of them were not. Um, and so that was a very different experience and relied a lot on, you know, because Ansel writes it, directs it, and then directs it, and then edits it, he'll be able to envision in his mind how things are going to work out. So I remember being with Katie, you know, we're like crawling around on the living room floor doing whatever, and we're like, Ansel, we don't, like, we don't, you know, we don't know what we're doing. And he's like, no, this is how this is going to work out. And then he'll explain, you know, visually what he's going to do and how it's going to get pieced together. Because, again, you know, lack of budget forces creativity. So if we do not have this castle that we're supposed to live in, <laughs> um, what can we do to create this world? And it requires creativity on the part of the staging and what elements are there and how we're doing everything that we're doing. And yeah, it would have been great to have a castle, but if we had to wait until we had a castle, we wouldn't have made the movie. So um, that was... Uh, that was that was also fun, but for very different reasons. And I have to thank Chris. I love Chris Pennock. I've gotten the joy of being in several things with him. He's awesome and fun and amazing. But I remember, I mean, maybe I, I shouldn't be giving this away, but the movie's been out for a while. When I go to kill him, like, I was terrified of killing Chris Pennock. Because Ansel's like, no, just run it in full force with this thing. And I was like, no. Yeah. It, was, it was very, um, you know, we don't have special effects or a stunt person or all of this stuff or whatever it is. And I'm like, I, I really could be bashing him in the head right now. But Chris was not worried. Maybe he should have been, but he was not worried. <laughs> Well, see, he wasn't worried to begin with. That's what led to his character having a demise, you know. Oh, right, right. <laughs> he was method acting. <laughs> but but, but uh, since you kind of spoiled it, your, your role was excellent. I mean, I love how you and, and Kate interplayed with each other as um, sisters that haven't seen each other for a long time that really don't care for each other. And, and both of you are not good people. <laughs> But yours doesn't show up until later. You know, yours, hers, it gets kind of played a little earlier and you start to think it's going to go one way. And then, of course, um, you're, 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 well, let's say blood's thicker than water. You, you kind of come out from the, the scenes and show that, yes, you, you're just as bad. <laughs> well, I think it's similar. Um, you know, you had mentioned earlier the dinner party and like some things between the relationships that are revealed later on. It's the same thing in the nighttime winds. You know, Katie and I know from the beginning, what is our relationship? What is our history? What has everybody done? How do we feel about each other? So we know from the beginning how we feel about each other, but maybe the audience doesn't know until later why that is. And of course, never really knows the full extent to why that is, but we, we know. Yeah. And I, I just, it was just, it was a nice, it's a nice film. And um, for those that haven't seen it, I mean, you can, you can actually buy it at oldies.com, you know, and um, it's, it's, it's like $5 and 95 cents on DVD. So, I mean, it's not, it's not expensive at all to get. <laughs> 
I just actually got my copy in the in the mail um, oh, on Friday. Thank you. And that kind of stuff. So it's uh, it's like, oh, I got, I got my. I forgot what it's paired with. It had something. It comes with something. It's not just nighttime winds. It has something else with it. I think too. Oh, I wonder what that is. I don't even know. Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> oh, hold on. The box is right in front of me. Yeah, there'll be a surprise for both of us. And of course, my son Ben will edit this long pause out. Otherwise, people will think, "Oh, <laughs> the episode ended." Well, it'll give people the time to, you know, go take a restroom break, get a drink. All right, what's on that DVD? I have no idea. Okay, uh, let's see. Feature length director's commentary of Ansel Farage, Kelly Kitko. Now, is it Kelly Aaron Decker <laughs> or Kelly Kitko? I forgot to ask you this earlier because he referred to you as like, oh, Kelly Kitko. You're... It's, it's both. Um, so they're all they're depends all what, Depends on which way you wake up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it, it depends on how I feel. They are all actually, like, legally my name. Um, the... <laughs> I could make this a much more amazing story, but the truth of it is when I went and had to sign up for uh, SAG to be in the union, there was already a Kelly Decker. And Kitco is my middle name because it's my mom's family name. And that's, you know, what I grew up with. So I'm like, oh, well, I'll just use that. But it's hard mentally to kind of make the shift when everybody on a daily basis is calling you Kelly Decker and then you're going by this other name professionally. So I answer to either one. They're very interchangeable. They're both my name. Uh, but, yeah, sometimes in credits I appear one way, sometimes the other way. <laughs> I noticed because I was looking at your IMDb. It's like, she's listed as Kelly Kitko, Kelly Aaron Decker. You know, I was like. <laughs> oh, let's see. Um, bonus episode of Fiata Fantastique, Madame. Oh. The oh, well, there's something we can talk about. So, um, speaking of oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> speaking of things that Ansel and Nate and I have in the pipeline, um, so we really enjoyed making, you know, those theater fantastic episodes are essentially a bunch of little shorts. I mean, if I had to compare it to something, it would almost be like the Twilight Zone where there's kind of an umbrella and all these individual episodes um, live under the umbrella of the Twilight Zone. So Theater Fantastique has a bunch of little individual episodes that all exist under the umbrella of Theater Fantastique. So our episode, Madame Lesseur, is about a uh, clairvoyant, maybe psychic, uh, from the 1960s. And we so enjoyed doing that that Ansel wrote a feature script that would take place, you know, a few years later, um, and we would love to film that, but it does, there are a few things about it that require a little bit of money that, you know, we can still do it low budget, but not no budget because it is a period piece and there's a big climax that coincidentally, given that we're in the, the pandemic right now, takes place at a drive-in theater in the 1970s. And so we really want you know, a drive-in and, and period vehicles and some of the things that will make that worth it. So we've not been able to film that yet, but that is one of my favorite scripts that if we had, you know, a little bit of money, we would love to film that. And there would be a part in there. Nate has a part in that. Uh, Jerry Lacey, um, you know, who was in all the Dr. Mabuse has a part in that. Um, it's, it's interesting because it's, at heart, it's a a road trip movie and a romance 
but it's also because I'm a psychic and I kind of accidentally get mixed up in something murderous going on, there is that thriller element to it. So um, there's a lot there's a lot going on, and uh, I, w- I would love to be able to film that as soon as we can. <laughs> oh, that, that would be good. You know, I, I know it's, um, as you said, it's always hard when you're trying to uh, drown up, su- drum up support, you know, it's like, and I, I, I'm sure Ansel would love it if, some, if somebody in Hollywood back up the money truck and say, here's your money. Exactly. <laughs> and then it'll be like, which, yeah, which I, project? If I, if I won the lottery, uh, Ansel and Nate and I, we could spend that very easily because I think they have, they probably have five scripts that are ready to shoot. Um, I would love to do Madame Lesser first. Um, you know, for a few a few reasons, uh, the least of which being, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not getting any younger, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it's very the, that that world that is created in that script and the the '70s is kind of like a psychedelic element to it. Um, just visually, it's like I can picture everything that happens and and the colors and the characters, and it's it's very it's very special. So. Yeah, we'll just hope I, I win the lottery sometimes. <laughs> I can imagine if you win the lottery, you'd also be buying a land in Montana, and you'd have that earmarked as your later <laughs> house. <scene>. Indeed, <laughs> and you know, I've told Ansel and Nate. You know, one of the advantages is if I've got a thousand acres in Montana, you know, we can write a lot of things that take place <laughs> right there. We would have, you know, our, our built-in our built-in sets and a lot of a lot of mules. I like mules. So there would be mules in the in the movie. I can imagine his own version of Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. All right. Now you mentioned it earlier, and we we talked about it before we started recording. But the dinner party was a, a film yes. I saw of yours earlier today, and um, I, I, did it come out? When did it come out? Because the IMDb says twenty twenty. And when I saw the thing, it was 2018. So I wasn't sure if it came out any time in the last three years. Like, well, it- yeah, yeah. We filmed it. Um, I mean, I guess we had to have filmed it in... We couldn't have filmed it in 2018. No, no, no. We, we filmed it in 2018, January 2018. But, uh, you know, it took a while to complete, to edit it. And our director, uh, Marco, also did the score for it. You know, there were a lot of elements As she mentioned, and I, I saw it. For those that have Amazon Prime, you can watch this. It's, it's you're already paying for it. Watch it. Yeah. <laughs> tell your friends about it. It's, it's it's really good. It's a small cast of four, but it's a dinner party. And um, again, you are the lead actress in it, and um, you have the opening monologue, which which sets up the whole thing. And I just your your performance was was captivating. You know, and one of the things with all your performances, you have a distinct look. And I think that's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people don't have that, you know, cause you watch these different things and you see, and everybody looks the same and, and you, you stick out when, when I'm watching, I'm like, my eyes like are drawn to wherever you are in the scene. 
even if you're not the focused actress at the time or actor at the time. And, um, and, and I think that's one of the things a lot of people wish they have, but they don't have, you know, it's like, if you get what I'm saying. Well, I appreciate that because I feel, um, I, I appreciate that. And I would say I especially appreciate it because I feel like the way that I look has, has cost me a lot of roles. You know, many things they want people to look that certain way and I do not. Um, but, you know, I, I try to look at it from the positive perspective of, you know, it's funny because when I did uh, Halloween Pussy Trap Kill Kill, there was a girl on the set who is very, very, very beautiful and by traditional standards. And I don't know if you saw that movie or not, but I play a bit of a, I don't want to say backwoods, but you know, it could be a little deliverance family sort of feel to what we're doing there, let's just say. So that's my character, which I loved and was super fun. I got to kill a bunch of teenage kids or little kids with a grenade. You know, it was, it was great fun for me. But I remember she said to me at one point, she's like, I wish I could play the parts that you get. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, I could never get that part because I'm too pretty. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's weird how we kind of both feel the same way because you get all these roles that I can never get because of the way that you look. But I try to see it from the perspective of, you know, I look different and I can, I'm i never going to be the traditional lead actress that looks a certain way, but I get to do a lot of fun things that those girls don't get to do. And I'm totally cool with that because to me, being a character actress is way more interesting than playing, you know, the suburban picket fence mom and the buff, 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 you know, whatever. Like I get to do a lot of interesting things. So it's a, I guess everything is a blessing and a curse, but thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, um, dinner party. Um, so you may have also recognized Eric, uh, from seeing a lot of Ansel's work. Uh, Eric Gorlow, we actually met doing, I forget the order in which we filmed some of Ansel's projects, but Eric and I met doing a couple projects together with Ansel, and then he wrote the script for Dinner Party and envisioned me playing his sister. And uh, we filmed that together, and like you said, it's a total cast of four in one location. You know, another, it's, uh, you know, obviously another low budget kind of thing, but we tried to, in that script, it, it was very um, character driven and character based. So there aren't any elements that aren't accomplishable. You know, there's no aliens, there's no explosions, there are no crazy things that need a budget. You know, it's a drama between people that takes place on one night in one location and what happens. Um, so we felt that even though it was low budget, it was still very doable because it's just more the reality of what these four people are going through together and separately on this one night of their lives. And for those that are trying to get an idea, um, basically um, Aaron's character is planning the perfect date for her, her um, a male friend that's going to be coming. So she sets up everything, has everything planned and like to perfection. And then her estranged brother shows up with his, um, I don't say girlfriend, Sorry. but his friend that's a girl, you know, it's a, uh, they show up and crash <laughs> the party and, um, and, and the tension goes from there. I'm not going to say anything more about it cause I don't want to spoil it, you know, and that kind of thing, but it's just, it's, uh, 
But I think that gives people a rough idea how the movie starts out. Yeah, that is, uh, yeah, I mean, that is the launching point. When I when I answer the door and I'm expecting it to be Jack and that we're going to have our perfect evening and it's my brother and his hooker, uh, well, that sets it up like it's a comedy and it's not really, <laughs> it's not really a comedy. Um, it's, <laughs> but yeah, that is um, wrangling everyone that, that night for me because I, I want them to leave. I just want them to get out so that I can go on with my night with Jack. But when he shows up, I have to pretend as though, yes, they were supposed to be here all along and we're going to have this lovely time together and the whole thing spirals. The more that it spirals, the more that I'm trying to fix it and control it and get back to get it back to where I want it to be. And uh, yeah, it, it, it never does. <laughs> it never becomes that perfect romantic evening that you're planning or yeah. your character's playing, not you, yeah. obviously. You know. <laughs> well, it, it was, it was, yeah, it was me. That's a, it's a difficult distinction to make sometimes. So <laughs> But no, for, for, for those that haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's it's a it's a hour and eleven minutes, so it's not really that long. And what I like about one of the things I really like about independent films is they don't worry about the length. They they stay in to tell the story, and then they're done. Where a lot of things will pad it. Well, we need to get the ninety minutes, or we need to get the two hours, and they'll pad it. And then when you get to that padding yeah. part of a film. You're just like, oh, why didn't, why did you put that in there? You just, it's, you know, it, it's taking me out of the picture and independent films, thankfully, rarely do that. They just tell their story. Yeah. That's what I was going to say about the dinner party is it's as long as it was, because that's as long as it was, that was the story. And, you know, sometimes when you're filming it, you don't know exactly, you can guess, but you don't know exactly how many minutes it's going to be. That's how long it took us to tell the story. So there's, why are we going to add other stuff to it? I remember, I won't say which movie it is, but one of the early movies that I did, you know, in order to get DVD distribution, they kind of had a pre-deal in place or whatever. And I believe the minimum runtime had to be, it was either 88 or 92 minutes that we had to turn in. And when the movie was done, they found that they were six minutes short of making this minimum requirement. And instead of, you know, they could have like called a couple of us back to do another scene or do whatever. They filled the six minutes in two ways. One, they used three minutes of stock footage of someone driving in Scotland and inserted that. <laughs> and three minutes of one girl being on the phone, like pretending to have a conversation that, you know, was never a part of the original script. So it was three minutes of stock footage of Scotland, three minutes of an imaginary conversation, and that made up the difference in the runtime simply because that was a requirement. I mean, nobody wanted to watch just three minutes of driving. Like, it was so bizarre. But that was the, you know, commercial requirement, which is somewhat ridiculous. But, yeah, there you go. <laughs> now, you're also, and another thing that's I haven't seen yet, her Deadly Groom. Her Deadly Groom. Oh, yes. That actually, um, very recently, uh, maybe two or three weeks ago, premiered on Lifetime. Um, that was something that uh, we filmed last December. So we finished it before the pandemic. Um, and then luckily, uh, they were able to, uh, you know, get it together and finish it to release 
during this time as, as new content. It just kind of worked out that way. Obviously, at the time, we hadn't envisioned we would be in the pandemic with a, a dearth of new content or whatever. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, no, that was, that was fun. We, um, we went into it with the hope that lifetime would buy it, but you know, no guarantee. And so from the production side, I knew, and you know, the person who directed it and the other people, we knew what the goal was, but I didn't want to tell any of the actors that because then if it doesn't happen, people are disappointed. They're like, oh, you said it was going to be on TV and blah, blah, blah. So I never want to set people up to be disappointed. I would rather people be pleasantly surprised if it works out that way. So, you know, the folks who signed up to do that, you know, we held auditions and people came in and we, we didn't tell them, you know, oh, hey, this, this is what we're hoping for. We're hoping that it'll be on TV. But, um, Luckily, it worked out that way, and that was uh, that was fun to see. I actually hadn't seen it until it aired, so it was um, the finished product was a surprise to me. But uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Yeah, as we're speaking, I think it's supposed to air later today. You know, because I was looking, at it, I was like, oh, "When's it going to air next?" Oh, after I'm done interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> friend that gives life advice that people shouldn't take (laughs) exactly exactly i think at some point um i remembered because when it aired on lifetime you know we were watching like um people were like live tweeting as it was being aired or whatever and i remember somebody's comment being something like because no one learns not to take life advice from this person yet No one should be taking relationship advice from me, yeah. And what's the character's name? Oh, in that one, uh, I was Brenna. So I can see now there'll be an advice column on the, on the internet. Dear Brenna. <laughs> Dear Brenna, yes. Love, love, life, and loss with, with Brenna. Yes, that was... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if, if, if you did anything with social media and people picked up on that, that would be a fun little thing to do. It would be like... Yeah, contact Brenna for life advice. <laughs> and do the opposite. <laughs> and do, right, exactly. Whatever I post, do the opposite thing. Yes, exactly. No, that would be uh, that would be very clever. I would enjoy that. One of the funny things from Loon Lake was um, Nate's brother came down. He, he was just there for the day and played the role of, of one of the guys who beats up Nate's character. And you know, I think he had like two lines or whatever. And his character's name was Chuck. Well, we found out after it released, he had started like a Facebook account about like I don't remember what he called it, but it was something like Chuck sightings or whatever. And he would he would post about the things that his character 
character was out doing in the world. And they were like the funniest things. And I'm like, this is fantastic. He took, you know, an hour's worth of filming and parlayed it into months of like hysterical commentary about what his character Chuck was out doing in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I mean. I I think, I know, I know you don't like, but that's the parts that I think social media was made for was when you do those little tidbits to promote or just have some fun with it. But um, I don't blame you for not getting involved in, 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 in the world of social media because I, I just get in it for keeping contact with friends and family and some different groups of, of people that like like certain movies and things like that. And you see so many different things posted and I just, I just ignore it. I'm just like, I don't post it on my site, you know, like anything that's political or other stuff, because oh. it's just, it's just, you're going to upset. You're going to have people commenting and, and it's it's not worth getting all that frustration. There are a couple of things that I don't like about it. Um, and this, this will, I think, eventually tie into the reason that I don't own a cell phone or the reason that I'm not on social media. Um, first of all, there's, there's a lot of negativity. And I think that when people post these things, they post things that they would never say to somebody in person. So like the area where I live in, um, it's a little bit outside of LA. It's a little bit remote. You know, we all know each other for the most part, like we're really good neighbors, but there's this community Facebook page that I'm not on, but I hear about what people are posting. And it's, I mean, it's vicious. And I'm thinking to myself, if this person walked over to their neighbor and talked, they would never in a million years say the stuff that they just wrote behind their computer. And I don't know what the mentality of that is, but I feel like it's led to such, I I get that there could be positive uses for it, you know, absolutely. But for some reason, the, the negativity just runs rampant and has done a lot of damage to human relationships and interaction. And the other thing that I don't like about it, I remember um, I was working with a director. There are always these kind of smaller roles to cast. Like, you know, the, the main roles you'll hold auditions for and people will come in. Well, if it's something for just one line, maybe you're not going to hold an audition for that part. So you'll think of like, okay, who have I ever worked with that could do this or whatever. So we were sitting at his computer and he sent a Facebook message to this girl asking, you know, was she interested in doing this, whatever, whatever. And it hadn't even been five minutes when he was like, screw her. She's out. We're going to. And I'm like, it's been less than five minutes. Like, she hasn't even had a chance to, to read it. And now you've, you've moved on. It's this idea that now, because of cell phones and, and media and all these things, people necessitate an immediate reaction. So back in the day, you know, somebody would actually write a letter and they would put it in an envelope and they would send it by mule. And maybe two weeks later, maybe three weeks later, you would wait to get a response. And nowadays, if someone hasn't responded in 30 seconds, it's, you know, you're, you're over them. You hate them. It's bad. We've moved on. It's this, this immediacy that is somehow required or become necessary that I don't agree with. And I think has damaged the way that humans interact with each other. So I I would love for people to be less kind of about that and the posting and waiting for a response. And I'm it, it's too it's too much. Like I would I would much prefer to 
have someone call, or I mean, you know, heaven forbid somebody actually write a letter, but, you know, take the time to have a real human interaction than just, uh, so many people refer to these people on the Facebook, like, as their friends. And I remember talking to somebody about this friend. Well, come to find out, they'd never met this person. They never actually talked to this person. This person had just posted things. And I'm like, why do you think this person is your friend? You're referring to this person as a friend. You don't actually know anything about this person. I think people now have way fewer actual friends. And this huge amount of people who fall into this, like, acquaintance category that really there's very little to it. So I personally would rather invest more quality time in the few friends that I do have than do all of this, you know, posting and, oh, now somebody knows what I have for breakfast. Okay, great. Why, why does that matter? Um, I don't know. This, this is, you know, Kelly's vision of the ideal world. I don't know. <laughs> Well, everybody has their own version of what the idea were. I, mine, mine is more akin to yours, where if you're going to have a discussion, you're not going to do it in social media. I mean, it's just, it's just like people's like, well, we're just trying to do a discussion. No, that, that doesn't work that way. Discussion is where you're sitting with each other and you're, and you're talking and you're listening to the other person and you're going over whatever points you want to cover and that kind of stuff. And a lot of times when I grew up, I would always like to be the devil's advocate. So I might agree with you already, but my my point of view is in order to find that if my opinion is valid, I try to find ways to invalidate my opinion. You know, and so you're looking for contrary points of view, and if and sometimes you find out, yeah, you know, my opinion was wrong, and you change. And other times you just find out it's like so far it's you know, and that's, to me that's the whole point. You want to have discussions, and and learn. Yeah. I mean, earlier in the conversation about social media, you know, you mentioned politics, and I won't, like, get into the politics here, but on that topic, I believe that people used to be able to actually discuss something, and hey, we might completely disagree, but that's okay. But nowadays, somehow, with all of this, like, immediate posting, it's polarized people to the point where if someone disagrees, they're bad or you hate them or you're going to put them out as being this horrible person. And, and you know, it, 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 this social media where people are talking about, Oh, it brings everybody together. Everybody can be there together at one time and communicate to me. It has completely done the opposite. It's polarized people. It's pushed them farther apart. It's made them hate each other without actually having the discussion that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. They're just posting. And often I feel like they're posting to like win not to understand or come to a compromise or see why does the other person believe this and oh okay well maybe it's fine that i disagree it's more about like winning an argument or besting them in these posts rather than like you said having any actual discussion about the topic or the merits or what's behind the opinion or the reason that you believe this thing that you do and i think you know in terms of politics today that has definitely not helped the nation in terms of coming together, it has made it easier to drive people apart. And that is, I think that's a very bad thing. Yeah, I'm not even just thinking politics. Like you could be just talking like you're, you're, you're trying to do something online talking about, let's say two movies, you're comparing two movies and one person likes one more than the other. And, and it, it's when you're doing it 
and you're typing it in, you do not see the facial expressions. You do not know. Sarcasm never oh, translates right. well. <laughs> yeah, and you can never assess someone's tone. You don't know. You know, when you take a very neutral statement, you know, some of these things, you know, my neighbors will sometimes call with, oh, so-and-so just posted this on the Facebook. Well, first of all, I don't want to hear it. But second of all, if you're going to read it to me, no, you're attributing your own tone to what has been written. When in reality, this one very simple sentence could be said three different ways with three very different meanings. So unless you hear from that person what was their intention, like you could in person or even over the phone or even over Zoom like, like we're doing, you're taking that sentence and attributing a negative to it that maybe they didn't even intend. So suddenly you respond and now a fight has started where it's it never even should have been that way. Yeah. And there's always those people, and, and, and not, not just online, but in real life when you talk with them, they just like to stir the pot, so to speak. And they like to. Oh, yeah. And I always say to them when they're stirring the pot, I say, so are you stirring it count clockwise or counterclockwise? So. <laughs> you know, cause, cause people are going to be that way. And, you know, they just like to see some little drama, I guess, go on and, uh, you know. Yeah, they want to create, I don't even know if it's drama, create conflict that wasn't there to begin with or didn't need to be there. I don't, I don't really understand what someone gets out of that, but I know there are people who are very much fueled by that and driven by that. And social media allows you know, the proliferation of that and for that to become a norm rather than the exception in terms of behavior. And like I said, like how people interact or how they talk to each other or what they're willing to post or say from, you know, the safety or the anonymity or whatever it is of their own computer rather than being in person and talking to another human. Yep. And um, so obviously, listeners, you will not be able to find Kelly Aaron Decker or Kelly <laughs> Kitko anywhere on social media. So... <laughs> But, right, exactly. But you can find her work. Like we said, some of it is available on DVD, um, um, Amazon Prime. There's if, if you just put in her name, you'll see a whole bunch of movies that we didn't talk about. I mean, there are a lot of movies that, that you have been in, um, especially early in your career. Um, you know, so there are, there's work out there. And, of course, like we said, the, um, the dinner party is available on Amazon Prime. Um, Loon Lake is available on Amazon Prime. You can also buy the Blu-ray to DVD and oldies.com with other Ansel's work that you've been in, like the Nighttime Winds, Future, Fantastique. And, of course, um, Her Deadly Groom is on Lifetime. You know, um, I'm sure it'll be re-airing every time they do. Um, they're, they're, I think they're, this week they're doing the um, Women in Danger theme is the week. Wait, isn't that every week? <laughs> Except around Christmas. I think they, um, from what I heard, because this was another movie that had, a, you know, when, when we started it, we filmed it under a completely different title because we, you know, we didn't know that it was going to Lifetime. We didn't know, you know, they were going to retitle it. But what I heard was the reason they gave it this title was because, you know, how they have that whole section that's called, like, the wrong this, like, the wrong doctor, the wrong stepmother, the wrong neighbor, the wrong whatever. I think they were planning to have a whole series of, her deadly whatever. So we're her deadly groom, which I think might be the first in a series of, you know, her deadly neighbor, her deadly hairdresser, her deadly whatever it is. 
uh, would be kind of a new theme, umbrella theme for uh, Lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> Her deadly dad. Her deadly stepdad. Exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> Her deadly that's granddad. That's probably already pairing. <laughs> Well, the funny thing was yesterday I interviewed um, a director, Sam Irvin, and he's done movies for Lifetime and Hallmark. And yesterday I watched um, his movie Mile High Escorts. And that's the whole reason I know it's women in danger <laughs> theme. And, that's, and, that's awesome. So it, it was kind of interesting. I was just like, because normally I don't watch the Lifetime channel. So it's kind of, it's like. <laughs> I don't know that you are there demographic let me put it that way <laughs> I, I don't think so but it's like my wife even said when i was watching the um watching it and she was watching it with me she goes um this this isn't a movie you would normally watch is it i was like no nah, i probably you know but i'm, I'm one of you know it's, it's it's his most current work so i want to watch it so I, you know i'm talking with them and they're you know i enjoyed it but it was not something like i would seek out and be like i want to watch it again you know <laughs> but um, one thing i would say is Everything I've seen you in, um, you've done an excellent job, you know, with doing your different roles. Yeah. And I think I've seen you grow like, in, like an Ansel's work where you, you're developing more and more with your character and getting that, the point of view of that character across. Like um, we discussed, just some people might say somebody's evil, or people say they're the villain, but to the villain, they're never the villain. Right. And you, yeah. and you're able and to portray that really well. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think, um, I don't know if actors feel differently. Well, a lot of actors look at acting very differently and I don't want to get too like actory speak and be all weird, but, um, you know, it, you can't go into something thinking, I'm, I'm trying to think of who I heard explain this, but it, it was an actor who played Hitler in some movie and someone was saying, you know, how could you, you know, he's evil, all of these things or whatever. And the actor explained it, you know, I wish I had his words in front of me because he's going to explain it much better than I did. He's like, I, I can't go into it playing it as I'm the evil mastermind that everyone in the world hates who killed all these people and did all these evil things. I was a human who was doing what I thought was, I don't know, the right thing or the good, whatever it is. He does not have that perspective that the outside world has. He's not playing the character from the perspective of how everyone now sees Hitler. He has to find something in Hitler to play as a human being. And so, you know, not to compare Hitler to Mary Jane by any means, but you don't go into that saying, oh, I'm evil. I get, you know, it, this is a person this is what the person is feeling. This is the experience that the person happened. This is how I relate to it. These are the same things, the elements of it that have happened in my life. Okay, maybe I have not been beheaded in real life, at least yet. But there are similarities. And when you're playing something, you're finding what in your own human experience do you share with that character, whether that character is you know, Mary Sunshine or Mary Jane Trelinden or Hitler or whomever, if you seek out to just play that as evil or bad or how people feel about that character now, that's ignoring the humanity of that person who was a real person who existed. Um, 
And I think you could probably maybe tell in some different performances of who, you know, like one of my favorite quote unquote villains of all time, I would say it was Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. Well, that's probably all in all a pretty bad human who's going to eat people and do these things or whatever. But he played him as a human being who had interests and ideas and goals. And it it wasn't just, oh, I'm playing the bad killer and I'm going to be this, you know, whatever. Um, The reason why that to me is one of the best performances that I remember is the elements of being human that he brought to that role and to his interaction with Jodie Foster and how he felt about all of these things that comes from a perspective of being a human, not from the perspective of, Oh, evil serial killer. That's a very superficial outside perspective and diminishing of everything that made that human a human. If that mm-hmm. makes any sense at all. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, does. it does. It makes sense to me, you know, so, and, you know, and that's one of the reasons I like to interview people that have done different work because a lot of the, you know, listeners, like they see the work, but they don't get to find out what's going through people's minds as they're doing the work or what's behind the scenes and how to get these films done and get them to the end product. And I think your particular interview is one of the more insightful ones with getting into the mindset and the production side of getting that done. I think a lot of the listeners are going to hopefully appreciate that to getting that, that point of view. <laughs> we'll see. They might think I'm crazy, but like you mentioned the dinner party, you know, a lot of people might look from the outside at FEMA and say, Oh, she's crazy. Oh, she has a role. She's all of these things or whatever. To me, that was a love story. And that was, I love this person so much that this was my only option. And not everyone is going to understand that. Not everybody is going to, you know, that movie is another way. You know, it's not for everybody. But for the people who understand that feeling, you know, obsession is a very difficult thing to deal with. (laughs) It's it's hard. Um, And I know maybe I relate to FEMA in my own life more than I should or more than it is healthy. But I know what that feels like and how much that hurts and how much that you feel like the best possible scenario is for the two of you to die in a moment of being happy and being perfect together than to have to live the rest of your life in this miserable world. And not everybody is going to get that or whatever. But for the people who do or who understand that or feel that way, then I think those people will relate to this movie and relate to, you know, what did I feel? And a lot of people, you know, I remember my mom watched it and she didn't, she didn't even understand what was going on, let alone how, why, how did I feel about Jack and why? And, well, you couldn't have loved him because you were trying to kill him. Well, that's the way you, well, but you don't understand. Um, so, I think um, understanding what someone else is going through and living that out, um, bringing that, you know, that, that, 
there are four actors in that movie. We kind of each have an equal part. Like maybe I'm quote unquote the lead, but not really. Like we're all pretty much have equal screen time there in that movie. I think everybody who who watches it might relate to a different character. Some people relate to me. Some people will relate to Eric. Some people will relate to Jack. Some people will relate to Bridget. And that's exactly how it should be because everyone in the world has a different perspective about these things and these feelings and what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do and what should you do and how should you feel about this. So one of the things that I like about that movie is we each lived that very deeply and very truthfully for us and how people in the audience react to the characters. There are people who hate me. Great. There are people who say, Oh my God, I've totally felt that. Great. We are, achieving resonating that feeling of being a human with people in the world who have also experienced maybe not the same exact thing, but the the heart of the feeling of what we're going through, that is, that is there. And that is something that someone at home is going to be like, Oh, I, I know what that feels like. And that sucks. That hurts. That's joyful. That's sad. That's whatever that is. I mean, that's what, that's what telling the story is, is not just the plot, but how the people are feeling about what's going on. Exactly. And and like I said, by you explaining that and bringing that in, I think that's what people need to understand, you know, that don't have an acting background that are just looking at characters and just think, Oh, it's, you're just, you're just pretending it. There's a lot more work to it. There's a lot more things to it. And there's a lot of things behind the scenes to get, independent movies done and out there for people to see. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing your future work, not only just with Ansel, but in other projects like you've done, you seem to have a nice fair mix. Thank you. Well, for that movie in particular, um, one of the things that I thought was interesting about it, you know, if you think people at home might be interested in this, I don't know what anybody's interested in, but um, the director of that movie, uh, Marco Capaldo, uh, I had not worked with him before. Eric had, but he thought he would be interested in the subject matter. And we had a number, we had like a month-long period of rehearsal, but we never, ever, ever touched the script during rehearsal. The rehearsals were all about our characters and what we had experienced to that point. So Eric plays my brother, and we have a very deep, difficult relationship. And so our rehearsals were all about what we did during childhood, what we did as teenagers, doing these things together and actually having experiences so that then when we actually get to the script on set, everything in the script is informed by something that we've already experienced. We already have a feeling about what, you know, when he shows up with a hooker, how does that make me feel? Well, I know how it makes me feel because I lived out you know, 30 years of being with him and being his brother and being in different aspects of a relationship with him. So when this woman appears at my door, I have a very specific reaction and feeling toward that. And that's only informed by, that's not informed by the script or the words in the script. There's no parentheses that's like, FEMA is irate. FEMA is irritated. FEMA is amused. None of that is there in the telling. That is what we experienced or created together as our history that then informs every moment that is being filmed. 
So, you know, when he takes me in the bedroom and touches me and tries to hug me, that feeling of how I feel (laughs) is not something that is written. I mean, it's written in that the script exists, but it's not an emotion that is dictated by the author. It's an emotion that comes from us living out that experience truthfully as these two people would if they had this very complicated history. Um, yeah, that probably got too like annoyingly actory. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. It's fine. You, you know, and um, my um, younger son, my, not my, my young, my older son is, um, an actor, like, like I told you before, he, he did some you know, theater stuff. And um, so he's looking and trying to do that. I'm not sure. He's like dabbling right now. And my daughter is graduated with a theater degree in production. So it's, um, oh, cool. so I'm used to seeing a lot of act. I'm used to talking to a lot of up and comers and, yeah. you know, and that kind of thing. And that's what I was meaning about how you draw people when you can just see on stage, certain people are just able to draw the eye to them and you know and, and, and either you have that or you don't i mean it's just you know and i think that one of the key things is being that you know that distinctive personality that distinctive um look where you're just like ah that person's unique they're not like everybody else and um, and that's what i really enjoyed about your work and um i think we, we we've actually talked for a while about different things yeah. oh no have sorry you oh, know, no, no, no. I don't talk to people very often so I'm just like hey we'll talk about everything <laughs> which is fine I mean that's what I enjoy I mean we, you know it's um you can ask Ansel I mean, him and I had a, had a had a um a long marathon thing and then he goes well we didn't talk about this and this and this I said we got to leave some meat on the bone for the next one <laughs> yeah I was gonna say Ansel because if you were talking to Ansel about all of his movies you could make that like a weekly podcast like how he, he can fill hours every week. <laughs> exactly. And, and and that's the enthusiasm that all three of you, Nate, Ansel, and yourself, bring to doing films and getting them out there for us that I really appreciate and enjoy. And um, how he's able to also somehow get these these um legendary, or as you said, famous, but I look at them as um, people of high-quality professionals to come in there and do the work with with you guys and, um, and, and really make these productions like a little sweeter. Like, and actually, as you always know, in order to get a little more views, a little more that, sometimes you need that name person. And thankfully they're um, doing that with it, like Jerry Lacey, David Selby, Catherine Lee Scott, Christopher Pennock, and you know, and so on, you know, thankfully they're helping you guys out with getting that extra boost, you know, so people will see the work and eventually, you know, um, you guys will be able to, get that on your own because the work will start to speak for itself which it should yeah but i mean i also like i can't imagine anyone even even though david and Catherine, those roles were not written with them in mind i now cannot imagine anyone else playing them (laughs) you know so it's like they they are you know he is pastor jansen (laughs) like there is there's no way around it i can't I can't envision anyone else, you know, like you said about personality. Um, if you gave 10 different actors the same script, you're going to end up with 10, at least 10 different performances because everyone brings their own, even though they're saying the same words, they're bringing their own 
personality, their own viewpoint, their own everything. And one of the things that Catherine and David did over and above that I think makes them, you know, as you said, legendary or whatever, however you want to phrase it, they took those characters so seriously as a part of themselves. You know, they're not just, oh, I memorized my lines and I'm saying my lines. There was a lot of discussion about, okay, in this part, I'm feeling like that this is what, you know, they absolutely made those, they are those characters because they brought their humanity to those roles. They are not just saying the lines that Ansel and Nate wrote. They created those and put the extra step of their feelings and viewpoint and everything that make them human into making those characters actual humans and not just lines that are being spoken. Exactly. And they're, they're, they're consummate professionals at their craft. Yeah. And that's what, um, and you guys are, like I said, growing into those roles and developing. And I think they are too. It don't matter how many years you've been doing anything. Once you stop learning something, then you probably should move on to something else. You know, if you stop enjoying it, if you stop having that drive, and uh, and then you, then you, that's in your case, I guess you go to Montana and go to homesteading. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, every single movie, you know, even the ones that I did, you know, you mentioned some of the earlier titles that I'll put into the category of like sorority slasher. Even those, I've learned something from every experience that I've ever had. I've learned some good things. I've learned some things never, I don't want to say never to do again, because I'm glad I had the experience, but I remember being on some early films and thinking, okay, in my future life, I would do this differently based on this experience. I would learn, you know, you learn how to treat people, how to... I mean, especially on low-budget independent productions where you're doing everything yourself, all of those elements, you know, if you're on set and you're just taking everything in, all of the experiences that I had, if the titles are good, bad, indifferent, funny, awful, horrible, the worst thing ever filmed, I learned something, more than one thing, from every one of those productions that then, you know, made Loon Lake possible. <laughs> because if I hadn't had, have had some of the experiences in the past of, well, how are we going to do this? Or, oh, no, you know what? I did that on this one, and that really didn't look so good. So we got to think about a different way to do it. Every Loon Lake is the culmination of every experience that I ever had. And so I look at all of those very gratefully for helping to teach me things. Um, if you're not learning and everything that you're doing, yeah, like you said, you may as well just give up and watch TV, I guess. <laughs> well, not, not, at your, not at your place in, in Montana, because you'd have, like, no electricity, you know, as you told me. Oh, right. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't watch TV. But, no, I'm, I'm going to be very busy with what I'm, what I'm doing. So <laughs> I don't need a TV up there. But thank you for taking um, you know, a couple hours with me to talk about these different films of yours and um, your acting perspective and how the production thing went in. I'm, like I said before, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are going to really – appreciate this background information and stuff like that. So thank well, you. Thank you for, for having me and also for caring about independent film. I mean, one of the things that's hard for us is just even getting people to know that our film exists. Cause you know, people want to interview Iron Man or whatever it is that I've never even seen. 
a lot of people aren't interested in the smaller movies. And so just getting the word out that we exist and, hey, why don't you give this a shot? Like, we really, really appreciate that and the opportunity to share what we've worked on with, you know, the folks who are listening to you. And the fact that you're in Baltimore is only like the icing on the cake. So. <laughs> Uh, I, I know it's, 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 it's. Do you have Old Bay in your house? I have several tins of Old Bay in was, my house. I was going to say I was going to make sure. If not, I'll, if not, I'll have to get your address and send you a can. You know, because we got to make sure you have Old Bay. You know, even if you don't use it to eat, you can just oh, the smell. <laughs> you know, it's funny because when I first moved out here, I actually could not find it in supermarkets, and my aunt who lives in Dundalk would mail it to me. But since then, something must have happened because now it is in most supermarkets. So I'm I'm totally I'm totally set on Old Bay. <laughs> People are starting to wise up on the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks again for letting me interview you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a, a joyful afternoon. Great.